This is Pastor Scott Hidman from Clovis Hills Community Church, and you are listening to the Clovis Hills Podcast. You are about to hear from one of our teaching pastors here at Clovis Hills. I want to encourage you to download the Clovis Hills app where you can follow along with today's notes, submit a prayer request, or give to the ministry of this church. I hope today's message encourages you and draws you closer to the heart of God. First of all, I want to say... uh... Good morning to our online community. Uh, I'm, I'm much more dialed in now that I've been away for a few weeks on vacation. And one of the blessings of technology and having a presence online is actually it was fun to be in. Well, first of all, it was fun to be anywhere other than Fresno this past week. Uh, we spent six days together as a family, my kids and my grandkids in Cayucas. And one of the things that I do, like church is part of our deal when we're away. So we just did like Facebook church. We did Facebook. I sat there with my phone, with my phone, and uh, got to experience the service with you. And I, I just want to say this. Well, first of all, one of my goals every July, you might want to make this a life goal. It has nothing to do with the message. But I want to go, I want to vacation somewhere where sometime during the week, my wife says, it's freezing. (laughs) There were a couple of days when she just said, it's freezing, it's freezing here. And I'm like, isn't it awesome to be freezing in July? Like that is just the most glorious thought I can think of in this moment. But last Sunday, I will, I just want to say this for those of you that were here and those of you that perhaps missed, you got to check out that service because I was so proud of our team. Like, it just fired me up. I, 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 wish, I wish I could have been physically present here because to listen to our team, and, I, and I'm one of the newest, I'm the new pastor, you know, I'm the newest guy around, so I haven't known my team that long, but here's what I, I want to just declare is we've got a, an outstanding children's and student ministries team here that are serving and ministering to families in phenomenal ways. Now, it's, it's super awesome. Because it just fired me up. I loved listening to John and Rochelle. Man, it was just great to Derek and Mike. It was, it was just fantastic. But here's the thing. Like clapping, clapping is not enough. Like really what they were doing is casting vision, get a clarion call that we've got to invest deeply in the next generation. The way we do that is we take those that have gone before them and have gone deeper in the faith and walked with Jesus for a longer period of time to step into their lives and be a presence, be part of the village, right? Be part of the village that's pouring into them. Because here's the thing, how many of you have teenagers? Raise your hands. Let me tell you something, your direct influence is dwindling. Say, no, 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 I got power, I got a lot of power left. Yeah, well, guess what? That diminishes over the years. And here's the thing. I prayed for, like, God, bring other, other people into my kids' lives as they get older and move into the teen years and their adult years. I want you to bring influences, spiritual influences into their lives so that they can be part of the village and the tribe that's pouring into them. Here's the thing. You could be that person in some student's life. You could be that, that person in some four-year-old's life. Every uh, Sunday when I can, I, I, I make sure I make the prayer time in the little holy huddle pre-service with all of these youngsters 
that do their deal here on the platform. And let me tell you something, it, it, fire, it builds me up. When I see, not, not just that they're good musicians and good singers, because let me tell you something, that's not the deal. God can, God can use anybody to do that. But when the heart is right, when the heart is right, when you've got a generation of young musicians and artists that really are passionate about honoring the Lord and bringing us adults into the presence of God, it's an exciting thing. And all I want to say is this, don't clap, commit. Like do something, man. I, I, I'm going to tell you, it could be one of the best commitments you ever make by saying yes to some serving opportunity in uh, children's ministry or student ministries. I thought Derek's idea of like adopting a, a senior, I think adopting a senior or adopting a high schooler is a great idea, man. To have some caring, Christ-following adult that will pour into the life of a high school student, pray for them. Be another strong spiritual voice. So I just want to say that out loud. The other thing I want to say out loud is Pastor Sean, I love this dude, man, but he has no idea what's coming. And here's what I mean. When he said a couple weeks ago, like, I'm so glad I'm over that season of my kids watching the same program over and over and over. Let me tell you something, Sean. Grandkids are coming, bro. I watched Mary Poppins, I think, five times this week. I can sing any of the songs. What, what line you want to know, man? I, I know the movie Mary Poppins inside and out. So, Sean, uh, so, sorry about that, but that's just, the way, that's just the way we go. Now, part of what I want to do this morning is because last week was a standalone Youth Sunday, we, we kind of disconnected from our series. So let me try to bring you back into series mode in 1 Corinthians Uh, Good news for bad Christians. We've been doing a study in this letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. And Corinth was a relatively young church, a very influential church in a very influential city. And because they were a new church, Paul was trying to address, like, how to do life together. You know, it's one thing to be, say, hey, we're the church. Go be the church, right? We say that every Sunday. It's another thing. How do we be the church with one another? That's where it starts. How do we live well and operate together in ways that really are God-honoring? And what was happening early on in Corinth, because Paul only spent 18 months there, really left it in the capable hands of Aquila and Priscilla, Paul came later, but they had a good leadership team. But then there was emerging leadership that came up into the church that were, they were proud and arrogant. And they were really, because um, uh, Corinth was an intellectual capital of the world, they were really hungry and thirsty for knowledge. And a lot of times for them, knowledge was the trump card. If I knew something you didn't know, it's one-upmanship. I know you don't follow me. And some of their application in terms of how they were living out their faith was really detrimental to the life of the church. I remember many years, for actually five years, Jamie and I, taught a Growing Kids God's Way class. It's, it's an old, kind of old ministry that ministers to parents of young, young children. And here's the thing. Uh, we taught it twice a year. It's like a 19-week class, and we did it primarily because we needed it. We just wanted to stay dialed in. And one of the principles I remember 
from growing kids was this. Peer pressure is only as strong as family identity is weak. Peer pressure is only as strong as family identity is weak. Meaning, you have a strong sense of family identity to withstand the pressures, the external pressures that are gonna come at us from the world, right? The challenge in the church in Corinth was most of the problems were internal. They were having a lot of challenges getting along with one another and how they were living together. And here's the thing. It's why Jesus said it. He said, uh, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for who? One another, one another. You, you, you will demonstrate to the world that you know me and you love me by the way you love each other. Love's got to start in the family of God first. In other words, when we send you out to be the church, it's going to be hard to be the church out there if we can't love one another in this nice air-conditioned auditorium. Right? So, Paul was addressing some very real and practical matters. And what I'd like to do is um, I'd, I'd, I'd like uh, my friend Marty Potter to come up. She's going to read, if you have your Bibles, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Hang on, because I've asked her to read the whole chapter, because I think you need to hear the whole chapter to really understand the issue that Paul is addressing. It's one, I'll just tell you up front, it's going to feel and sound a bit obscure. It's like, I don't understand what that, what I just heard has to do with anything that I'm doing like in my life today, but I'm gonna try to pull it together. So if you would, out of respect for God's word, if you're able, if you could stand for the reading of God's word as my friend Marty reads. First Corinthians eight. Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols. Yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth. And some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, but we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you, with your superior knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol... Won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, 
you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. This is the reading of God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, guys, first of all, when you saw that last line, I will never eat meat again. I'm not going there, okay? Just hang on, because I know for guys, for guys, like, that would be, you're going you're gonna to unplug right away. Now, how many of you just in hearing that passage thought that is the most inspiring text I've ever read in my Bible? Okay? <laughs> like, I've been living with this passage for a month and thinking about, okay, how do, how, do I bring, how do I bring this to our church family? I just want to bless our church family with a section that is very directly uh, uh, addressed by the Apostle Paul in this context of this church in the first century. And I think by the time the morning's over, we're going to see that there, it's, it's what I love about God's Word. It's alive, living, active sharper than a two-edged sword. It'll penetrate. It doesn't matter what passage. I could take you to Leviticus right now, and it speaks. It speaks. Because there's power. There's power. God God has something that he wants to reveal to us this morning through this passage. Now, cultural context. Let's Let's try to just sort of transport ourselves back. What it was like to be a young believer in a relatively new church in Corinth in the first century. This is a very cosmopolitan, what we would call a very secular city. As we have uh, heard many times throughout this series, it was really laced with lots of idolatry, lots of temples and shrines from other faiths, other religions, other deities, other idols. Not all too different than, listen, you can go down knees and you can see Christian churches You can see Sikh temples, you can see a mosque, you can see Buddhist temples. I mean, right? It's not just one religion. It's like a cosmopolitan of all sorts of amalgamated religions. Now, here's the thing. Most of the people that got saved, that heard the gospel and got saved, they came from that. They weren't necessarily unspiritual They were spiritual, but perhaps part of their experience, even as a family or as an individual, is they worshiped at some of these shrines and temples. If you go to other cultures and other countries, there is just innate thing that always this innate human need that we want to appease the gods. We want to, we want to gain the favor of the gods. And a lot of times we'll, we'll do, we'll go to any length to make sure that the gods are happy. So you can see that a lot of believers that heard the gospel for the first time in Corinth through the Apostle Paul, they were saved out of this. Like it's just, it's no different than us. All of us have a past. We all have a past. We all have a story. And that story's been shaped by our experiences, religious or irreligious, whether we grew up in the church, didn't grow up in the church, whether we grew up in another faith and then came to understand that Jesus is the only way and the truth and the life. So, what was happening in this context? Well, some of the, quote, mature believers who believed that they knew the truth were exercising freedom in a way that was detrimental and hurting some of the weaker members of the body. Now, here's the thing. I just got to say this out loud because this is one of the inherent dangers about being part of a bigger church, okay? And I would describe Clovis Hills as a bigger church. 
The truth of the matter is you can sneak in, blue chair it, sneak out, and really have very little connection. Most contexts that we read about in the Bible were intimate communities where people knew each other and they were doing life in close proximity. So they had to figure out how to do that well. And what I did, what I did in the first century in this young uh, uh, burgeoning church really affected these young believers that were watching me. The same thing happens today, although sometimes we dismiss it. Like in uh, Corinth, it was simply, look, part of the worship that happened in many of these shrines and temples was similar to how the Israelites brought their sacrifices to the temple. They brought sacrifices to the temple as an act of worship too. And what would happen with that worshiper at that shrine or temple they would bring, they would sacrifice an animal, a portion would be offered to the God or the deity, the idol, A portion would be retained by the priest, and sometimes, depending on the size of the offering, some would be portioned back to the one who's giving the offering. Here's what the priest did. The only way I can explain it is simply this. They utilize all the meat that was given and apportioned to them. So what they would do is they would go to the meat market and sell it to the meat market, and the meat market would sell it in the marketplace. Now, You're saying, okay, Mitch, thank you for all of that. You've totally lost me, have no idea what you're talking about. What if you grew up believing that meat offered to idols or to shrines, that there's demons involved in all of that, and it was dangerous, and you came to faith in Christ and then thought, well, how does all that work now? I don't even know. Should I I even bother buying meat? Should I even buy meat that's been offered to idols? Most of us, like, we got USDA, man. We know what kind of beef we're buying. I'm just saying, in first century Corinth, they didn't know what they were buying. They didn't know where that meat came from. It could very well have been offered idols. It was almost impossible to go to the open market and buy a piece of meat that perhaps wasn't in some way part of a sacrifice to an idol. A problem. Now, let me take it one step further. How many of you have planned big family events or weddings? How many of you have done that, right? Okay, yeah, like there. Like there's a lot of finger pointing going on. Here's the thing. Many of these pagan temples and shrines had banquet halls. They had dining halls that could be utilized by people. They were what we would call venues. If you've planned a wedding, you've had to lock in a venue. And really, there's a diminishing number of venues for the amount of people that want to utilize them. So it was quite commonplace for all sorts of family occasions for people to rent, to utilize these venues in these uh, temples or shrines for family activities. And they would invite who? They would invite their friends. What if you were a friend and you just came to Christ and you're like going back to the temple that you know that's idolatrous, that, that's not true, that's not right. Everything about me knows I've come to know the one true living God and I don't even feel right going into that building. So what was happening was there were mature believers that thought, look, I know what's right, I know what to do, I know what this is all about, 
Um, it doesn't matter where I worship. It doesn't matter where the animal was purchased. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. What matters is that I have the freedom to exercise in the way that I feel led to. Now, let's try to get to the heart of what God wants us to hear. There's principles in this passage that I think are just unavoidable. The first is this, in your outline. Your premise matters. Your premise matters. Let me explain what I mean by that. I use the word premise on purpose. Premise is something you base a theory or understanding on. For the Corinthians, the, the, the mature believers, some of the leadership that wrote to Paul, their understanding was, look, I am free in Christ. I know that I, I serve the only one and true God. I know that all these idols are false. I know that everything in the earth is the Lord's. I don't have to worry about whether something's been offered to uh, uh, another pagan God because those deities don't exist. Therefore, I can eat meat. Any meat I want, I can go wherever I want to go. This doesn't offend my conscience. That was their assumption. So these proud Corinthians really were setting a bad example for new believers that were really struggling to try to figure out what do I do? Should I eat meat? Should I not eat meat? Should I go when I'm invited by a neighbor to the shrine, to the temple, or shouldn't I go? And then, not only that, but they were influenced by seeing these older, mature believers freely participate in all of this. Hey, if it's good for them, it's good for me. You can see where this is going. Paul is trying to uproot this. And in verse 7, we pick that up when he says not, because they were saying, look, we, we have knowledge. We know all this. We know it to be true. We know what's not true. And Paul says, not all believers know this. Like, Jesus came and gave his life to build a family called the family of God. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Jesus gave his life to become head of this family called the church. And he is, he is deeply concerned and intimately interested from the least to the most and he certainly is interested in how those of us that have followed him for any period of time, how we exercise our freedom and influence those that are coming behind us. Here's the thing. I, I think there's a common practice that would be really good for all of us as we do life together in community, and that is we should always in some ways be testing our motives and assumptions to see if we're starting from the right premise and if if our logical conclusions which lead to our actions build others up, is what I'm about to do, is where I'm about to go, is what I'm doing right now, is it building others up? Am I in any way possibly hindering the growth and development of someone that is watching me? Another young believer watching my life, does my life give testimony to my love for Jesus and my love for his church. I just think it's good. Look, here's the thing. It's good for us to test our motives and assumptions. We, we, because as we'll see in point two, and here's the thing, love trumps knowledge. Love trumps knowledge. I even hesitate to use the word trump because that's so divisive. But love 
trumps knowledge. Let me give you a big idea that came to me uh, late uh, Saturday afternoon, and it's not in your outline. It's just simply this. When it's gray, let love lead the way. Say that with me. When it's gray, let love lead the way. As much as we would like the world to be black and white, it is not black and white. And it's dangerous sometimes to be right. Because here's the thing. Uh, Paul wrote, and we read earlier, while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Knowledge puffs up, another translation says, but love builds up. Love always trumps knowledge. You know, we, we can get later into the letter. It's very clear. You've heard this passage over and over, almost ad nauseum. Every, almost every uh, wedding you go to, uh, we'd like to share with you the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And here's the thing. It wasn't written to couples. It was written to the church. It was like the crescendo of Paul's letter, and he says this, and now... Let me show you the most excellent way. And he gives this incredible, eloquent description of love, and it includes these words. If, listen to this, if I understand all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if, I'm, if my head is just full of facts, and if even if I had faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing, nada. I can have all the knowledge in the world. I can know intimate, uh, deep the deep secrets of God. But if I lack love, I am nothing. Paul is trying to pound this through into the heads of some stubborn proud, arrogant leaders in the church in Corinth who were unwilling to be responsible in how they were exercising their freedom. What if a, a real sign of spiritual maturity is how really we're growing in love and not knowledge? You know, we focus a lot about what we're learning, what we're coming to know. What if the litmus test is more about how is this helping me love God more and love people better? Like love, love is, I think one of the reasons I love Bob Goff is he's just serendipitous and he's goofy and he smiles and laughs a lot. But part of it is, I think he's got a big part of it right. Like it's all about love. We got to love people well. Why did, you, why did people love? Why, did, why, did it, why does it say sinners and people of ill repute, people... People reckless, living reckless lives, they flocked to him. He was a friend of sinners, the glutton. He was a friend of sinners. He loved people well. And he loved us so much that he was willing to go to the cross. So let me, let me uh, be transparent for just a moment because God, I, I love the fact that God is always at work all around us, and he, he's eager to do a work. He's an, he's an inside-out job, uh, God. He, he, wants to, he wants to not change us externally. He wants to go inside and do a work on the inside that shows up on the outside. So a couple of years ago, uh, really it was, 
It was a convergence of a number of events that actually is a big part of the reason that I'm here on staff at Clovis Hills. But here's how, here's how it fleshed out for me in a very tangible way, if I can be really transparent. Um, I, had a, I had circumstances happening in my life that I would just say was a convergence of not just one challenging thing, but a number of challenging things. Can anybody relate to this? It doesn't feel like one thing is a little off or I got one challenge. It feels like there's, an, there's like this total convergence of many things. And you feel this sense of desperation and being overwhelmed. And here's the beauty of that. You know, a lot of times that creates a perfect environment for both us to be attentive to God and for God to show up in some extraordinary ways. Because here's what I want to promise you this morning. If you uh, dare to give God your full attention, he will show up. Do you hear what I'm saying? If you will give God your full attention, he will show up. And guess what? He will speak to you in very personal and direct ways. I'm just saying if you want to hear from him, give him your full attention, and he will speak to you. So here's, and here's the thing. You would think, because I know, I was going to say, some of you think, you know, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for 35 years. I spend 23 hours a day in the Holy of Holies, and God speaks to me like 27 times a day. We have this ongoing conversation. No, it doesn't actually work like that. So God, God had some work he wanted to do in me. And here's what he said. He said, Mitch, uh, and some of you are going, really, he calls you by name? <laughs> Actually, it felt very personal. Yeah, it did. And here's what he told me. He said, Mitch, I, I love you. I, I'm, I'm quite fond of you. you I, don't, I don't know why all this restlessness, all of this scurrying about, all this fr- frenetic activity, what, what is that all about? I, I lo- I, Mitch, I loved you before you were a pastor. I love you. Now, now that I've got your attention, you feel better about yourself. I want you to think about your life. And I want, to think, I want you to think about just the trajectory of your life and how you've been living for the last 20 years. And here's what I want you to consider. I, 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 I'm, I'm eager to do a work inside of you where you become less focused on all the things you're doing all the time. And I want, to, I want you to focus more on the person that you're becoming. Are you becoming the person that I've designed you to be that's life-giving in every interaction that you have? Sometimes you're on the go and you're going so hard and so fast, you miss all kinds of appointments, stuff I invite you into. And I'm saying, can you slow down long enough? Can you slow down long enough just to stop and consider every day, is how I'm living today, is what I'm doing, will it be life-giving to other people? And you know what? Um, I'm different. I'm different. Here's what, uh, just natural things I've noticed. Used to be I love to t- come in and take over a room. Oh, it's fun. When you're a sanguine, and you like, to, you like a good time, you like a party, like you come in and take over a room. You like to establish your presence in a room. And you know what? A lot of times what that means is you like to take over and monopolize the whole conversation. And before you know it, you know what the main topic is? Me. All of a sudden I realized, man, I think I've spent way too much time talking 
and way too little time listening and asking questions and trying to find out what's going on in another person's world. All I'm saying is this, it has helped me, it has helped me to be more loving. And uh, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is? The greatest of these is love. Love is really what's going to have the long-term eternal impact. Love is going to outlast it all. Love, you could know everything, and it's all going to perish with you. But let me tell you something. The love, the, both the receiving of love from God and the giving of love to others is going to last eternally. That's why God wants us to understand, man, it's all about love. I love Dallas Willard, this quote, one of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt other people with it. Let me say that again. One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt other people with it. You know, you, you, can, be, you can have all the facts. You can be completely right and how you live that out can be completely unloving. And God has called us to love. Now, point three is simply this, and I think it's really the heartbeat of where uh, the Apostle Paul comes out on this with this, uh, these uh, people in Corinth in this church. Responsible freedom considers others. Let me, let me just read for you again. Here's what he says. You must be careful, you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. And that's why Paul just says, like in, with him in his own personal life, so if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. Paul, why did you say that? What he's saying, it's like when he said, you know, I become all things to all people, so I can win some. What he's pressing into here is life in the church. Listen, we, we, we have a responsibility. First and foremost, we will give an account to God. But we also, we live in community. We live in relationship, in community with one another. We have a responsibility to one another. There's like 34 or 35 exhortations in the New Testament, one another's. Very specific ways, encourage one another. Provoke one another to love and good deeds. There's just all sorts of one another's in the New Testament. It's about the way we live with each other before we even go out these doors. So really, we need to be responsible. Here's the thing. I... Uh, the title of this message is Shades of Gray. There's a lot of issues that we face today in this world that we live in that are not 
clearly as black and white as we would like them to be. And that's why it's really a matter of the heart. God wants to, God wants to influence our heart so that we, our response comes not just out of knowledge, what we know, but the right heart, a right heart postured toward God and postured toward others. The most loving thing to do is to consider the least of these, the weak, the minority, the prodigal, the wayward, the vulnerable. Paul says, use your freedom to serve one another in love. I love, he wrote something really powerful in Romans uh, chapter 14. He said these words, yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Just think about that. Just think about that. Like, am I living in a way, is my life being conducted in a way, am I managing my, my choices and my freedoms in a way that really is blessing and encouraging other people or causing them to stumble? I just think that all of us got to go guilty as charged, right? There's some stuff that maybe, uh, if it was really exposed, I think could be really detrimental or damaging to those that are weaker in the faith. Paul goes on to say, the kingdom of God is, is not a matter of what we eat and drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Build each other up. Think and act and live our lives in a way that builds others up. Here's the thing. Knowing Jesus brings freedom. Amen? Knowing Jesus, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But listen, that freedom is just not some unadulterated freedom to do whatever I want. It's also a responsibility. It's a freedom to love. It's a freedom to love. Here's the thing. If you're a child of God, you are his beloved. I've been following Jesus for over 40 years. And the sweetness of that decision I made to put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ at 13 years old, I am more grateful for today than I've ever been. Now, like, my gratitude grows immensely for the love that Jesus demonstrated to me in coming and dying for me and then, and then capturing my wholehearted attention when I was 13 years old. But here's the thing. Uh, Eugene Peterson said it this way. Getting love, getting love is a launching pad to giving love. Getting love is a launching pad to giving love. Getting love is not the end game. Oh, good, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. It's all good. I'm going to heaven. No, it's actually, wow. The God of the universe loved me so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for me. He took upon himself my sins on the cross. Hallelujah. Right? Hallelujah. But here's the thing. Because I know that now, 
And because I've experienced his love, I've got it. I got to get it. God invites us to give it. Like the thing is, he doesn't want, we're not retainers. We're conduits. We're not receptacles. We don't just take stuff in. No, we're conduits through which God wants to, he wants to take all that love that he's poured into you and poured out into others. And I believe it takes, it, it takes a heart transformation for us to do that well. And here's the thing. I was thinking about this like, Here's my, how my mind works. I'm thinking about what if somebody comes for the first time to Clovis Hills and hears a sermon about meat offered to idols. Here's the thing. I think if you, if you really pause and just reflect for a moment that the God of the universe cared so much about the minority, the few in this little church in Corinth, this young church, that he was really given a strong, stern exhortation to them to quit being so puffed up and proud and knowledgeable and start loving better and being a better example. He was saying that for some tender young believers that were new and fresh in their faith. And I just want to say, man, if you don't know Jesus yet, doesn't that sound like an incredible God? That he, he's not so busy with the big things that he's not concerned about some vulnerable believers in this church in the first century that were really not being helped by those that have, were more mature in the faith. To me, it's just another beautiful demonstration. It's, it, Jesus told parables. He said, you know, the good shepherd, he'll leave the 99 to go get the one. And here's the thing. Could be that you're here this morning because you are that one. You are that one that Jesus came and died for. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Oh, knowledge. No, he's not. that's not what he's talking about because those that he, were ta he was talking said, well, we're descendants of Abraham. They said, we've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. Doesn't matter what your heritage is. Doesn't matter what your background is. All of us basically are part of that family. We're slaves to sin. We sinned, we rebelled against God. We've separated ourselves from him. We're going our own way. And Jesus comes on the scene and invites us to go his way. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Anyone who comes to me, man, I, I, I will welcome you home. Become part of my family. And so what I want to do is I want to lead us in a prayer. And I, I'd like uh, all of us to bow our heads and close our eyes. Hi, this is Pastor Sean Beattie from Clovis Hills Community Church. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Hey, I encourage you to download the Clovis Hills app on your phone. With the app, you can do all kinds of things like prayer requests, live notes, giving. I also encourage you to check out our uh, Facebook Live page if, if you want to watch online. You can come to our services live. They're Saturday nights at 6 o'clock, Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast.